You're listening to a special edition of On the Record, online with Eric Schwartzman, the official podcast of the Public Relations Society of America International Conference, October 16th through 19th, 2010, in D.C., featuring conference keynote speakers, panelists, and newsmakers. To join PRSA or register for the conference, visit prsa.org. Our guest today is Jim Vanderhei. He is the executive editor and co-founder of Politico, a nonpartisan media company covering national politics and Washington governance. He is confirmed as a keynote speaker at the PRSA International Conference in D.C., October 16th through 19th, 2010, and he will be opening Sunday's general session. Vanderhei, along with John F. Harris and Albrighton Communications, launched Politico in early 2007 and quickly established it as one of the leading new media companies in the nation. Vanity Fair recently named Vanderhei among the 100 most powerful information age thinkers for helping to create, quote, the model for new media success. In December 2009, Vanderhei was selected to be the first representative of a primarily online news organization to serve on the Pulitzer Prize Board. He draws on 15 years' experience in Washington journalism. But before we do get started, a quick word of gratitude. Thank you, Matt Armstrong, Shanali Burke, Joe D'Amatos, Don Kilberg, and Eric Silberberg for helping me with the research and for suggesting your questions for this interview. Glad to be here. Glad to do it. Tell us first, if you would, about Politico's editorial personality. Well, Politico's been around uh, since about 2007, uh, and we launched, uh, most of us are refugees from old media. I came from the Washington Post, as did John Harris, who was a co-founder. And uh, we, we sort of launched with a, with a pretty clear purpose, that we really wanted to focus uh, laser-like on politics, on Washington, and, and Washington governance more broadly. Uh, and we really wanted to break down a little bit of that barrier between the, the news organization and the reader and really let them in on the conversation about what we're really hearing in Washington, what's really going on in Capitol Hill, and what's happening inside the White House, with the idea being that we knew insiders like soak up that information. We've experienced it from our, our years of covering this stuff, and we're hungry for it, and that if you could provide that, there was a huge audience of people around the country that wanted to be in on that conversation. They wanted to know what are the insiders talking about, what are they gossiping about, what are they hearing, and what's really happening. And we've been able to pull that off. We've been able to hire a set of reporters who have a unique voice, who have a unique skill set. Uh, usually it's, they're just better reporters than other people or better writers or better conceptualizers put them all in one place, and then every day tell people stuff they don't know or help them think anew about Washington, about what's really happening. And when we're, when we're at our best, we're doing that routinely. We're doing it a couple of times a day, so people have to click back and keep coming back to the conversation and find out what's happening in Washington and what they really need to know. Now, Politico's website draws 3 million unique visitors each month, and you have a Washington-based newspaper with a circulation of 30,000. Your audience consumes your content also through social networks, through RSS feeds, through widgets, through smartphone apps. Putting the print issue aside for a moment, talk to us about how the demand for Politico's content over the digital channels is changing. And share with us, if you would, what predictions for which digital channels will become increasingly important um, You know, from your point of view. I mean, it's a good question because things are <clears throat> they change so rapidly that uh, – 
uh, any prediction I make now will probably be revised in, in six months because we have uh, a new technological devices that catch on uh, coming online constantly, and I think we're going to see a flood of uh, sort of iPad knockoffs coming on market in the next two months. But most people still get our content when they're getting it digitally from the website. Uh, unlike most websites, we actually have a pretty good uh, number of people who are coming to coming directly to the website through our homepage, and they're coming here. Uh, they're the ones who I consider our core audience, and that's probably you know somewhere around 350,000 people that every day are coming to the homepage, are clicking on multiple stories. Uh, I tend to think they're probably political insiders, political professionals, uh, and they come to us that way. Uh, like every other website, we get a ton of sideways traffic, and what sideways traffic is would be coming from Google, Drudge Report, Huffington Post, Talking Points Memo, you know, any one of scores of, uh, of different publications or different online uh, sites that are linking to our work. In addition to that, we have a BlackBerry app, we have an iPhone app, we're about to have an iPad app, and you get a, and a Kindle. Uh, you can get uh, political on Kindle. We have a large number of subscribers on there, so a lot of people are coming in and getting the content that way. And that's that's the big trend is 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 figuring out how quickly are people going to move to getting their information on mobile devices, whether it's a larger one like the iPad or smaller ones like your phone, your BlackBerry, your iPhone. And I think there's no doubt that uh, two or three years from now that the vast amount of uh, news consumption is going to be done on those devices or some variant of, of the iPad. The next question comes from Joe D'Amatos. He's a PRSA member and CEO of the Health Facilities Association of Maryland. And his question is, concerning Politico and your core business, define the role of social media in your publication and business model. To be honest, it's not a huge part of our core business model. Our core business model uh, we are we're an advertising supported for profit company. Almost all of that money comes from what's called issue advocacy ads. It's somebody uh, taking out an ad in our publication, either newspaper or our iPhone or, or online, to, to either like, to influence an argument or to influence uh, tastemakers or opinion uh, shapers on Capitol Hill and the media and the White House. Uh, and so the bulk of the activity uh, is there, and so the bulk of our focus is there because our whole idea is. We want to be essential to our readers, especially our core readers, folks on the Hill, uh, folks in the White House, and therefore essential to our advertisers. Social media excuse me, is a good way uh, to get traffic, to get new viewers, to get people to come in uh, and exposed uh, to Politico. I think for some of our core readers, it's probably the predominant way that they're getting our information. But as far as the business model, as far as where we're bringing in revenue, it's a very, very small uh, portion of what we do. But I think it's going to increasingly become uh, critical uh, to what we do, especially come election when more and more people are plugging in to your content, you know, whether it's through their Twitter feed, through their Facebook page, all the roundabout ways that you can get the content now. Now, in David Carr's column, Media Equation, uh, which runs Monday in the business section of the New York Times, he quoted David Bradley of National Journal Group saying, uh, quote, I think that Politico's entrance entirely changed would have been a pretty cozy market with a few incumbents. National Journal, CQ, and Roll Call, and kudos to them for demonstrating there was a market beyond the Beltway. Now, you guys have nearly 100,000 Twitter followers, uh, which is double your closest competitors, Roll Call, and Congressional Quarterly on Twitter. What is Politico doing differently that allows it to resonate beyond the Beltway? I just think we're a completely uh, <clears throat> different publication uh, 
and, and to be blunt, like I think in a different class, like we've put a ton more money into, uh, into the editorial side. Our newsroom is significantly bigger uh, than Roll Call, The Hill, National Journal. Uh, and I don't say that despite them. I'm, uh, I used to work at Roll Call. I love all those publications. I read all of those publications. We just have a different focus. We focus both here, but we also focus on driving that conversation nationally. So we, our people are on TV constantly. Our stuff is getting linked to constantly. Uh, our stuff's getting picked up and reacted to in the New York Times and CNN and everywhere else. So I think we're just we're a much bigger part of the national conversation about politics and governance than they are. They have for for years have just focused laser like on their core uh, activity, which is just covering you know, like in roll calls case, just covering Capitol Hill and being essential just to that one. Uh, smaller audience. We want to be absolutely essential to that audience, and you know, to be frank, we want to be more essential to that audience than Roll Call, The Hill, or National Journal, or anyone else. But we also want to be essential uh, to the White House. We want to be essential to people who care about this stuff in the states. And there are a ton of people out there who really do care uh, about what's happening in Washington and have really taken advantage of technology to plug in uh, into that conversation. So I read David's car, uh, David Carr's column uh, with great interest. Uh, I'm always trying to figure out what our competitors are up to, and you always learn a lot from listening to what other media companies are doing or trying to do. And I think David Bradley's comment is true. There was sort of this. There was a, an incumbency here. There were several companies that had been here a long time doing things the same way, and I think one of the advantages have, that we have had is to, to be sort of the insurgent uh, in this market, and that we were able to come in here. We didn't have a we didn't have a legacy. We didn't have uh, we didn't have any institutional. Uh, sort of uh, uh, liabilities of like, oh, we've always done it this way. Like we were new, we were built for speed, we were built for the internet era, and we were built for uh, what I think people need and want today, which is like getting information in their hand as quickly as you can that's relevant to the conversation that's taking place in Washington in politics and governance today. Well, well, let's talk about that for a minute. In the about mm-hmm. section of Politico, it says, Politico is focused on amalgamating the old media values of fairness and accuracy with the speed and immediacy of new technologies. But, you know, when I read that, I thought, well, isn't that a bit of an oxymoron? I mean, how can you possibly triangulate truth among multiple sources and fact check for accuracy at the speed of Twitter? I don't think it's hard at all. I think that, that, and I think this is not just true for us. I think it's for other uh, uh, news sources that really try to get it right and try to cling uh, and adhere to the, to the old values of journalism. Those values are: you want to be fair, you want to be accurate, you want to be right, you want to give both sides uh, their fair airing, uh, and those things haven't changed. So the values as a journalist that that I cared about and that have instructed like how I do my job haven't changed from when I was at the Wall Street Journal or when I was at the Washington Post. What has changed is like how you take those and then like use that and infuse your company with how you're going to deliver your product. People don't want to wait till tomorrow to hear like reaction to Obama's press conference today. If they care about this stuff, they're waiting on their Twitter feed or at their computer. They want some instant analysis. They want instant news. They want to know what Pelosi said about it. They want to know what Boehner said about it. And I think you can go about moving extremely fast and getting people information in their hands in real time and still do it being accurate, being fair, being right. Our next question comes from Don Kilberg. He's a Foreign Service Officer at the U.S. Department of State. And he writes, In this era of instant communications and grassroots diplomacy, we recently observed someone previously unknown hijack the national discourse by threatening to burn a Koran. We then observed a high-ranking public official's comment directly on this, including the president. 
Do you think we'll see more of this sort of grassroots diplomacy hijacking? And where should high-ranking officials and media editors draw the line in potentially adding fuel to the fire by covering it? I mean, a great question, uh, a relevant question, and, and, and to be honest, a tough question. Uh, and I think it's one that we're all grappling with and I think we're going to grapple with for some time because there's not an easy solution. Uh, I get people's frustration with that story. This is one person in Florida with a flock of 50 with values and ideas that are outside of the mainstream, so far outside of the mainstream of his own Christian faith. Uh, and he was able to essentially seize control of the media for well over a week to the point where he got the personal attention of of the White House, of the Defense Secretary, of leading politicians. Uh, and I think it's unfortunate because this, this guy was not reflective uh, of his faith, was not reflected uh, of the was not reflective of the country. And and to be honest, I think the media played a big role in blowing that into something big because you could have Anderson Cooper sitting there on CNN challenging this guy, hey, "What are you doing? This isn't right!" Like, well, great. Why are you giving the guy attention? To begin with, given that you know that uh, by most standards, people would say he's he's a lunatic who's offering uh, an opinion that virtually no one else agrees with. Uh, so it's a tough one. Uh, at the same time, when people are covering it and all of a sudden politicians are getting dragged into it, it's hard when you're in the media to just ignore that. So it has almost this self-reinforcing, perpetuating uh, cycle that rolls into what became a huge, huge story that had international consequences potentially. Now, last year, the House of Representatives passed a bill that would establish a federal shield law to protect reporters from revealing their sources. Why do you think the Senate's failed to act on that legislation? I don't know why. Uh, <clears throat> to be honest, I don't know why uh, it hasn't acted. I've not even paid uh, that much attention uh, to, uh, to that uh, piece of legislation since it came up uh, late last year, so I don't, I don't really have a great answer on that one. Well, it, I think it sort of plays into the next question, which has to do with WikiLeaks. And, and, and I guess the question is, you know, what, what is the media's responsibility with respect to WikiLeaks? And should the government be able to abdicate the public's right to know in the interest of national security? Again, like a very uh, tough one that you have to almost... Uh you almost have to weigh it on a case-by-case case basis. Like, I'm definitely one who likes to err on the side of transparency uh, and the side of getting people uh, information. I have a lot of faith in, in people's uh, ability to process information and sort of weigh, weigh the source and weigh the consequences. That said, when you're getting into a situation where documents are getting leaked that could put uh, uh, soldiers' lives at risk, like it's a real tough one. And I think, uh, uh, I mean, thank God we do have reasonable uh, newspapers and newspaper editors that, Still to this day, when they do get across that information, despite the public's uh, somewhat d disdain sometimes for newspapers and for the media in general, they often act uh, with real responsibility. And the problem with the new media culture is it's 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 hard to have like a collective responsibility in a situation like this because even if the bulk of people are responsible with information, there's a million ways to get that information out, uh, and WikiLeaks is is one of them. They could post all of this information, and it's not just going to go; it's not going to get ignored. So it forces. By its very nature, it forces the media infrastructure to reckon with it. Jim Vanderhei is the executive editor of Politico. And when we come back, we're going to talk to him about dealing with nasty comments from inside the Beltway after this. This January 2011, Paul Gillen and Eric Schwartzman bring you the first book devoted exclusively to B2B social media communications. 
packed with business-to-business case studies and applied knowledge, Social Marketing to the Business Customer is the most comprehensive collection of B2B social media marketing guidance ever assembled. B2B markets are driven by value and relationships. That's very different from B2C markets. This book's a hands-on guide. It walks business people step-by-step through the process of using social media to find and engage business customers and ultimately drive more revenue. Social Marketing to the Business Customer is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, and Borders. Or buy it at our show blog at ontherecordpodcast.com. Also available for iPad and Kindle. In the Washington Post this week, uh, Howard Kurtz uh, wrote about, um, I'll read an excerpt from his column here. Uh, There are certain writers, because of their ideological opinions or inflammatory style, who you'd expect to draw nasty criticism. Uh, And I'm paraphrasing here, but Ben Smith is not one of them. The political blogger is a mainstream guy who talks to both sides and isn't pushing a point of view. Nevertheless, he's been called a weasel, a flaming liberal, a piece of snot, a three-year-old transsexual wanker, and a commie. Under a recent bland one-paragraph post highlighting an ABC News report about GOP leader Mitch McConnell, the first comment was, shut the F up, Ben, and take your journalist buddies to Cuba. Is there anything that can be done to encourage greater tolerance for differing points of view? And what, if any, lessons are there here for organizations who want to communicate with their constituents through social media? Uh, Again, another good question. Um... It's tough. I mean, we, uh, like, number one, I, as someone who gets written about all the time, I mean, we're, we've been out there, been out front and talking about new media, talking about what we're trying to do with this company, and also writing a lot about hot-button issues in politics. So uh, I often, my wife will occasionally Google my name and, and come back into, into the room almost with tears in her eyes because there's, like, a lot of nasty stuff out there. I, for one, it doesn't really bother me. I'd much rather be, like, engaged in this debate and understanding that people are going to say uh, nasty stuff all the time, and certainly Ben uh, Smith uh, gets that, too. What uh, I think Howie was referring to, a lot of those comments take place on your own site, on our own site, and we had made a decision early on, essentially, to invite the public in, and underneath in that comment section, like, pretty much as long as you're not using, uh, like, hateful speech, you're not using uh, inappropriate language, we pretty much let you say and speak your mind. And, you know, I mean, one way to try to encourage a more respectful debate uh, or at least to discourage uh, that kind of commentary would be for us and for others to really restrict uh, the amount of commenting that can be done on, on stories that, and that can be done on websites, uh, for one. And uh, to be honest, I think one of the debates we're having right now is should we be much more restrictive in the type of commenting that we allow on our site? Should we force people to register and, and give us their full name so when they do participate and they do say things, at least they have to attach their name and identity to it, which I think discourages people uh, from saying absurd or, or hateful things. Uh, we're not at that point. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if soon we are at that point of, of trying to be more restrictive uh, in the commenting that we allow. Uh, I think there's a lot of downsides. It's easy to look at, at new media, the spread of technology, and, and what's happened uh, over the last couple of years. I'm an optimist. I actually think that this uh, is all good. I think we're in the middle of a massive transformation that 100 years from now people will look to as a five-year period where 
the media was completely reinvented. And I think we're right in the middle of that. So I don't know what it all looks like two and a half years from now. But I think it's a net positive. I think people are getting more information faster. People are having more, uh, and also the ability to dig much, much deeper into legislation and, and into ideas. I, mean, I, I always talk about the health care debate, and people, well, you know, I don't even really know it was in that bill. I, I can never recall a, a, a issue in my lifetime that had more of substance written about it in that health care debate. Now, did people go to all of that? Did they go to all of the sources to really research everything that was out there? No, most people probably did not, but it was there. It was available. So people have access to information like never before. People that didn't have access to big newspapers or budgets to afford them now have access to that. So there's tremendous access uh, to a lot of people. And there's a much there's much more freedom to participate in debate and to activate. It's one of the reasons that, that MoveOn.org uh, for Democrats and now the Tea Party movement for Republicans have been able to uh, merge with such uh, with such speed and with such, with such impact because they're able to use technology as one of the mechanisms for organizing, for participating. And whether you like the movements or not, it is participation. And we're always complaining that we don't have enough of it in the political process. So I think uh, it's a net positive. I think for people trying to communicate, you just have to. You can't be scared of it. I would, I would, I would say, don't be discouraged. Uh, don't be fearful of the fact that if you do put yourself out there, if you do open up your website, if you do open up your social media network uh, for input, don't be af- afraid that people are going to say crazy things or, or, or say things that you don't like about your product or about yourself. It, it's going to happen. You have to understand that that's just it's part of the bargain you make uh, in being part of a big dialogue. Um, in terms of all the organizations that Politico is covering, uh, which ones do you think are doing the best job communicating effectively online? It's a good question. Uh, I mean, the bulk of the coverage that we do <clears throat> tends to be political in nature, so our interaction is largely with, uh, largely, not exclusively, but largely with the, the political class. So folks on Capitol Hill, White House officials, campaigns. Uh, so I think, so like the best insight I would have is on how like the parties and how the campaigns and, and how the, the folks on the Hill utilize it. And I would say that uh, for the longest time, I'd say to the last year, Democrats were significantly better than Republicans at using the Internet to its full advantage and using it as a fundraising tool and using it as an organizing tool. If you remember the Dean campaign in uh, 2004, it was a fantastic organizing tool. People f- found out about these meetups. They hooked up. They went to uh, these activist meetings, and they were able to meet candidates that they never would have before. I think a lot of people learned from that, that you could use the Internet as a communications tool. I think we saw Obama take this to a whole other level where he's able to create an entire community around uh, around him, almost as a brand, uh, and people were able to share stories and, and participate in his campaign like they haven't before. I think you're starting to see Republicans do a, a lot better job of that. I think uh, I was just reading recently, I think eight of the top ten uh, Twitter, uh, as far as Twitter followers, I think are Republicans now as opposed to Democrats. They're starting to be able to use uh, Twitter. I mean, obviously Sarah Palin has used it as almost her sole communication device with the outer world. She does the bulk of her communicating on Facebook or on Twitter as opposed to like picking up the phone or doing uh, television interviews outside of those which she has uh, con- contractually obligated to do with Fox News. So I think Republicans are picking up uh, in that area. And I think the common 
thing, and I think this is where it's applicable uh, to, to, to a company, to a trade association, uh, to an individual. It's like figuring out like who is your world, like what is your world of people that would be interested uh, in in participating in a conversation or discussion or information gathering uh, activity as part of your website, and then being able uh, being able to really serve them in a way that's useful. And I mean, the, what I see so often on on so many websites, particularly outside of the political sphere, getting into sort of the business world, is like it's like a lot of press release type stuff that would be pushed out uh, via the website. And just to me, like even as an employee or a participant in that association, it might not be completely useful. You have to think, how do I make this as essential and useful uh, and accessible uh, to, to the people I'm trying to reach as possible? If a PRSA member representing an organization wanted to request a meeting with um, uh, the folks in the newsroom or perhaps with uh, uh, Mr. McKinsey and Mr. Scarborough who have joined the new editorial board that you're creating, what would be the best way for them to do that? You know, it all depends. Like, you're, uh, I often find uh, a couple things I find useless, uh, essentially useless, uh, press releases. I don't think I've never, as a reporter, looked at one, and I don't think most reporters do. Uh, blast yeah, mass emails I don't think are, ex- are are that useful. You have to find a way. I mean, it's still like, despite all the technology, it's still like some kind of personal interaction is the best thing you could possibly do. Like get to a reporter, like get to at least a person who handles setting that stuff up at Political or at any other news organization so you can actually uh, have a conversation about why you want to bring uh, your folks in or why you want to talk about uh, your individual issue. And I think that's the biggest mistake. Uh, that, that people make as they send these uh, these emails, even the ones that have the sort of the the, the technical capacity to like put your first name in there, so it sort of gives the appearance of being personal when in fact you know it's not. So you need to. I think the easiest thing is to like figure out a way through phone call, email, to connect with the person that you actually want to connect or connect with someone at our organization or another organization that's close to that person, so you can establish that contact. Because we're, you know, as an, as a reporter. And I'm not. I run the joint, so I'm not a reporter. So I'm not on a bunch of email lists. But I still, in the course of the day, probably move through. I don't even really know if I want to know, but probably a couple hundred emails a day. I know of reporters here who get well over a thousand. I know Mike Allen probably gets twenty thousand or some absurd number that he has to wade through. So like, it's hard. You got to figure out a way to bust through that because most of you are like, oh, I'm not going to look at this. Don't have time for that. Don't have time for that. Something that's quick, to the point, and personal. Are you on Twitter? Uh, I am not. But I would say uh, I'm probably in a distinct minority here. Uh, my Harris and myself are probably about the only two who are not on Twitter. Uh, most people are. Um, I probably should be, uh, given that we uh, <laughs> strongly encourage our employees, uh, especially our reporters, uh, to be on there. Uh, my reason for not doing it is personal, and that I already have a sick enough BlackBerry addiction that if I have another technical device that I'm addicted to, uh, I might have a hard time keeping my wife and kids around. So I, I try to block uh, block that off and uh, stick uh, stick to the BlackBerry. Uh, there are people here who uh, John, Jonathan Martin who just swear by it as a news gathering tool and as a as a repertorial tool because they can keep track of what's happening in the different states, the reporters they want to follow uh, in the important states. I'm not that close to the news, so I don't really have to use it that way. And if I started to follow that way, it would just be such a blizzard because I'm not just responsible for one individual beat. I'm responsible for helping us think through all of our coverage. Jim Vanderhei is the executive editor of Politico, and he will open Sunday's general session at the PRSA 2010 International Conference in D.C., October 16th through 19th. Jim, thanks for joining us. 
You have a good day. Thank you. You've been listening to a special edition of On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the official podcast of the Public Relations Society of America International Conference, October 16th through 19th, 2010 in D.C. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, post a comment to the show blog at ontherecordpodcast.com. Connect with us on Facebook or Twitter at On the Record, or send an email to eric at ericschwartzman.com. This podcast has been a special production of On the Record Online and the Public Relations Society of America. Unlike normal productions of On the Record Online, this episode recording cannot be duplicated without explicit permission from PRSA.